Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Although pre-recorded, tonight's show will contain its usual amount of blunders, errors, and overall stupid things said by our hosts. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining, pre-recorded weekly pipe-smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. Hey, it's uh, it's uh, Tuesday night, the 21st, and uh, I'm doing this a week early because I'm taking nine days off and I'm at Disney World right now and hope I've posted pictures and uh Maybe some uh, pipe smoking pictures from Walt Disney World to my Facebook page. So uh, hope you, if you haven't seen them, check them out. I'll try to do my best. All right, in tonight's show, uh, we're going to do a couple more uh, in pipe parts, do a couple more famous pipe smokers, uh, two completely different types of people. Uh, both left a uh, left an impact on, uh, on society and uh, both smoked pipes. My guest is pipe maker Bill Shalosky. I've talked to him already, got it pre-recorded, and uh, Bill say uh, Bill's one of those guys that brings out the uh, character in me, um, more character than usual. And then uh, music mailbag is uh, going to be another article that was written, and then a, a quick uh, Microsoft rant because they've been driving me nuts with the with some emails, but. All that coming up on this uh, pre-recorded edition of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Um, hope everybody had an enjoyable International Pipe Smoking Day. Hope you all enjoyed that uh, visit with uh, Shane Ireland and the little break in format there. That was kind of fun to do uh, and kind of kind of fun to move it up to Monday. And now I'm doing this on Tuesday and then I really get uh, two complete weeks off from the radio show. So it's like a vacation from work and a vacation from the radio show all at the same time. Um, when I come back, I'll uh, update you on the trip and we'll get back to the normal schedule, normal routine. So, all right, everybody, let's get the show rolling. Sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. And thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. Here we go. Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog in the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I take my work very seriously. Pulling tents of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> In fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. Gotta run. <laughs> just log on to SmokingPipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right, for Pipe Parts, uh, two characters in history. One, an author, Rudyard Kipling, uh, better known as uh, born Joseph Rudyard Rudyard Kipling, born uh, December 1865, died January 1936. And the other, a man named uh, Fiorello LaGuardia. Those of you famous... uh, those of you familiar with New York City will uh, recognize the name LaGuardia from the airport. We're talking about the man who the airport was named after, and he was born December 1882 and died September of 1947. So let, let's look at these two guys. All right, both born in the uh, in the prime age of pipe smoking, both achieved high status. Uh, LaGuardia was. A, uh, uh, he, he was, a as uh, Wikipedia describes it, an irascible, energetic, and charismatic person. He craved publicity. 
and is acclaimed as one of the greatest mayors in American history. So, um, with that being said, <laughs> uh, it's nice to hear of a politician that's very humble. Um, and, no, anyway, uh, LaGuardia was only five feet, uh, five feet two inches tall, and he was called the Little Flower, because that's what Fiorello is in Italian. It means Little Flower. Um, anyway, LaGuardia was a Republican and was elected multiple times in the state of New York throughout his career. He went to Congress. He was on the uh, board of aldermen's and then uh, eventually the mayor. Um, he was um, he was not uh, he was it was a little rare in his time in that he was not a uh, isolationist. Uh, he believed in the League of Nations. He was pro. Uh, uh, he was anti the Tsar of Russia. He was pro uh, liberty, and uh, although he wasn't a fan of the communists, he thought that the communists was a better chance. You know, was better than living under a monarchy for other countries. Uh, the other thing that I'm trying to find here was. Uh, uh, his comment on prohibition is that uh, LaGuardia was one of the first Republicans to voice his opinion about prohibition, urging that the dry cause would prove disastrous in the long run. This was breaking a taboo given the fact that both parties avoided taking a stand on prohibition issues at the time. So he's, uh, he's, he's outspoken and also a little forward-thinking. Uh, he fought for a progressive income tax. He wanted greater government oversight on uh, on Wall Street and uh, national employment insurance for uh, during the during the Great Depression. So he was very much a social forward thinking, but outspoken person. Um, one of the uh, one of the opponents that he went up against and lost to was. A uh, was another famous New Yorker named Al Smith. Al Smith was a Democrat who still to this day they have the Al Smith dinner because Al Smith was the first Catholic to ever run for president of the United States. Um, anyway, he went on to be a you know quite a uh, quite a storied governor for the uh, a storied mayor for the uh, for the city of New York and LaGuardia Airport is named for him. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, on the other side of it, was uh, born to English parents, but born in Bombay, India. And Kipling, most famous for writing the Jungle Book in uh, 1894, was highly a prolific writer of uh, short stories and uh, poetry. And Kipling was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1907, when he was 42 years old, making him the first English-language writer to receive the prize and its youngest recipient to date. Uh, he was also uh, appointed the British Poet Laureateship on several occasions and, for, and was knighted, so Sir Rudyard Kipling. Uh, the... Uh, the other thing that's interesting about Kipling is that uh, it, at a young age of 16, he was, he was being schooled in England and was brought back to India to be with his parents who were stationed there uh, because he was considered not smart enough to get, a, uh, to get a scholarship into Oxford and his parents couldn't afford it. So he came back and he ended up traveling fiercely uh, I mean, just fiercely through his life, spending time in the United States, spending time in South Africa, going through most of Asia. And this is a time when, uh, when he was 16 years old, it took them uh, 32 days to get from England to India. So travel was not um, travel was not real uh, real easy back then. But yet he was moving around and saw all different parts of the world, and that probably helped with his writing. So there are two completely different kinds of people. Both left a, a lasting impact on our society, and both of them were uh, avid pipe smokers. All right, in just a minute, Bill Shalosky. This is Internet Radio. 
Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And, uh, you know... (laughs) Bill, I've been holding off having you on the show because uh, when you and I get going, sometimes it can be a little loose and a little goosey, but uh, we'll have we'll have fun and see what comes out of all this. But pipe maker Bill Shalosky, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Hey, Ryan. Nice to be here. All right. So uh, for those that don't know you, let's get to know you. Um, you, I'm sure you grew up somewhere and we don't care about that. Uh what were you doing when you first got into pipe smoking? Uh, I was in college. Uh, I think I was a sophomore. And uh, it was uh, art school. And uh, art school is a lot more stressful than most people realize. <laughs> and uh, a friend of mine, Dan, was uh, already smoking pipes and took me to a local shop and picked out a basket pipe and some heavily aromatic tobacco. And despite that, I was intrigued and stuck with it. Uh, now, wait wait a second. You you two were art school students, and you went and picked out tobacco for your pipes? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, if I remember right, it was called Pancake. It's <gasps> uh, only of maple syrup. Yeah. Um, so obviously you stuck with it. I mean, what what was it about the pipe and pipe smoking that kind of got you and made you decide to dive into it full uh, full heartedly? Well, like most of the things I end up getting into, it's somehow overly complicated, even though it really isn't. And there's a lot to know about it and. A lot of procedures and things like that, and I, I gravitate towards stuff like that. So you're the you're the guy that takes a simple thing and complicates it completely and tries to find out everything about it possible? Every time. All right, so did you graduate from art school? Uh, yes, I did. I uh, graduated with a fine arts degree and a uh, minor in art history, two very useless things. <laughs> And uh, I uh, ran the ceramics lab for a year. They just a one-year job they offer graduating seniors that majored in that field. And <clears throat> you basically just do the things the teachers don't want to do, like order materials and make sure everything's clean and all the work steady kids do their jobs and stuff like that. And uh, besides pipe making, did you do anything with your art career? Well, I dropped I dropped ceramics afterwards just because I always I still love ceramics. I just I couldn't get into it right after college. It was just way too expensive uh, as far as equipment and things go like that. And uh, I uh, was doing wood turning as well, and uh, I kept on with that for a while and. I, I still mess around with wood turning every once in a while, but uh, not as often as I should, really. So when did the idea come up that, you know, hey, I'm going to make a pipe? Well, I uh, I was actually making some pipes with a friend, uh, a different friend, um, in the ceramics lab. We were making clay pipes. Oh, cool. And uh, that was fun. We weren't using molds and things like that. We were... Uh, like hand throwing the bowl on the on the wheel and then rolling out some 
like a like the stem on the table and then just kind of sticking them together and well, we made so many of them we just had a box full of hundreds of pipes and a lot of times we would just smoke it once and like throw it over our shoulder when we, when we were done because we were just, they were free and we had hundreds of them <laughs> so, <laughs> so one yeah all right so now that you're all snooty and you're only smoking a pipe once and then throwing it away yeah. uh, we we're basically making cigarettes <laughs> <laughs> Uh, kids do not attempt to do this at home, <laughs> but yeah, so that's cool. So, you, I mean, were you making different shapes of bowls out of the, out of the clay? Were you doing weird art stuff out of it? What, or were they just all kind of traditional clay pipe looking things? Despite we despite being, uh, in art school, we were strictly utilitarian with them. They were pretty ugly, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, kind of like billiard bowls. Uh, and, uh, sometimes we would put some decoration on them depending on how much beer we had in us, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, now, now we're going to talk with, we're going to talk about you and beer in a little bit, but then obviously you started working with Briar somewhere along the road and, uh, discovered that you can make shapes out of wood pipes. Yeah, I got a, I had a couple, uh, kit pipes that, uh. I think most pipe makers get their start with it anymore. And, uh, yeah, I made some ugly pipes out of those. Those no longer exist. Um, but, uh, that got me a job at, uh, Smoker's Haven in Columbus. And, uh, there I kind of got exposed to more, more ideas, I guess. You know, I, you know, it's kind of beneficial working in a shop because you get the, see hundreds if not thousands of pipes go through and uh kind of like an idea factory and kind of opens your mind to what you can do or what can be done yeah and and let's talk about idea factories because you're now down in nashville which in you know i guess there's a little country music scene that goes on around there but i've heard about it i mean there's also this entire underground network of uh of pipe makers that have ended up in Nashville. Do you, do you guys have like a secret handshake or a, uh, you know, or a, a, a secret, uh, country club, how country club room that you guys all hang out in? If there is, they haven't told me about it. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. Don't forget that part then. Um, yeah. So you're, so you're down in Nashville now and you're working alongside in a city that's got a whole bunch of, you know, great pipe makers. Do you guys get together and share ideas and laugh at each other and pat each other on the back? You know, not as much as we should, but uh, I find that when pipe makers get together, we only talk about pipes when there's a uh, pipe collector sitting with us. (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the time you guys are talking about uh, quantum physics and the latest uh, Miley Cyrus (laughs) album? Yeah. All right, well, I'm getting this off track. Let's let's reel it back in. Um, so your your pipe making style is I mean I can see the art the art background. I can see some of the influences. Do you prefer to drill first and then shape, or shape first and then drill? Well, for probably eight years, I uh, always drilled first. It was on the lathe. And, uh, if it were like a classic shape, I would shape the bowl while it was on there too. And the shank. Um, and I knew how to, uh, the freehand style. I knew, I knew how to do it. I just never did it. I guess I just, I didn't want to risk, uh, screwing up expensive blocks of briar. So I just (laughs) never did it. And, uh, Moved to Nashville and started working at Briarworks, and uh, Todd's like, that's dumb, so I'm going <laughs> to show you how to do this. And uh, I, I still lathe turn. Like, I, I don't see the point in uh, freehand drilling a straight billiard. <laughs> like, you could do it much better on the lathe, but uh, I've started uh, freehand drilling most of the time, probably like 80% of the time, and uh, I like doing it that way. It's kind of opened up the doors to me, and... I'm doing a lot of things now that I wish I could have done before. 
I mean, Todd, Todd, the, the Todd you're talking about is Todd Johnson, who yeah. uh, definitely has a way of sugarcoating comments and easing the pain as, <laughs> as he tells you brutally what he thinks. Um, what's the benefit to shaping first versus drilling first? Well, you could be a lot more exp uh, expressive with the briar. Um, I've been doing a, a lot of these uh, asymmetrical shapes lately for, well, for a couple of years now. And uh, I usually refer to them, if it's like an apple, I call it a tipsy apple. <laughs> and uh, only has a little bit to do with how much beer has been drank during its making. I, I told you we're talking about beer later. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's, and, you know, also you can, uh, you have a lot more say in what happens. If, if the grain veers off one way, you can correct for it or, or not even really correct, I guess is the wrong word, uh, run with it. And, uh, and if, if there's a tobacco in chamber and draft hole already there, most, I mean, I'm not saying you can't, uh, do anything about it. You can. I mean, you can't do anything about it usually. Like it's you're just stuck. You can carve. You can only take it so far. You can carve a little picture of a uh, of a beer bottle onto that spot that you yeah. want to get rid of. All right, now we're talking. Now we're now we're talking about beer. Um, <laughs> when you were when you were first getting started, was there a part of the pipe making process that was really hard for you to get a handle on? Um. Probably the stem work. Being consistent with uh, stem work is probably the most difficult aspect. And is there a patience factor built into that too? Oh yeah, and I have none of that. <laughs> I, I don't have any patience, and uh, uh, yeah, like usually uh, the big difference between a. Uh, let's say beginner pipe and someone that's been doing it for a while is the stem. Uh, Cause I've always said you can teach anyone to shape a pipe. Uh, it's, it's really not that difficult and I don't want to belittle it cause sometimes it's really hard, but uh, <laughs> yeah. making a really good looking stem that looks like it goes with that pipe and there not be any bumps or waves in it and, making it look just really nice and clean. That's, that's really tough. And even though I don't have any problems with it now, it's usually, I, <laughs> it's usually the last thing I do on a pipe. If it's, if it's like an inset stem, I work, I finish the pipe and a lot of times I've had the pipe, it's blasted or smooth. It's polished. It's bowl coated. It's completely done, but it still has no stem just cause I, didn't feel like working on the stem yet. <laughs> and when you mean an inset stem, you're talking about one that the 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 shank is got a little wider spot open, and then the tenon goes in. You got to drill inside that that wider spot to get the tenon in there, so it looks like it's kind of a push yeah. stem. Yeah, yeah, like that, and uh, like pipes with ring decorations. Yeah, you, those just complicate things just to make them look prettier for some reason. Yeah. Well, the, my recent batch of pipes I had, I had uh, six or seven pipes sitting on my rack, all completely done. And again, like I'm saying, bowl coated and waxed and everything, and not one of them had a stem. <laughs> <laughs> so then I get that's where I get stuck, and I end up having to do seven stems in a row. Uh, Time-wise, are you going to spend about are you going to spend about the same amount of time on a on a stem as you would the actual wood part? Yeah, I'd say so. I've gotten, uh, uh, like working at Briarworks actually has uh, been really beneficial and it's helped me with speed. And, uh, like I can hammer out a pipe pretty fast nowadays. And, uh, the only thing that slows me down on the stem is that I'm just hem hauling around cause I'm not having fun. <laughs> like shaping the briar is way more fun than shaping the stem. <laughs> Have you ever thought of making a complete briar pipe where the stem is a piece of wood? I've thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> but but then there's that idea that maybe nobody will buy it. 
Yeah, those uh, those usually don't do too well in the marketplace. <laughs> well, hey, it would, at least it would stop you from goofing around with that, you know, that black plastic stuff. Yeah. Um, was there a was there a shape of a pipe that was hard for you to get get your grasp around and how to do it? Um, not really. Uh, some pipes are harder than others. I won't say uh, one's harder than the other, but different shapes take a different mentality, like a like a classic shape versus a, a blowfish. Yeah. Um, and there's some, uh, I won't name names, but there's some pipe makers that can make the most beautiful asymmetric horn or uh, blowfish or any wild, crazy shape, but they can't make a classic shape to save their life. And uh, that'll either be that they're just not used to doing them, like they don't do them very often and they don't have enough practice at them, or it's simply just that's not how their mind works. Or they just don't love it, so they don't look forward to it, and we won't won't pick on Todd anymore. Uh, We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more pipes and we'll uh, talk beer with Bill. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco, expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor, and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well-loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Bill Shalosky, one of the uh, Nashville mafia of pipe makers. Um, so I'm looking through your website is Bill Shalosky, S-H-A-L-O-S-K-Y dot com. There's a couple of examples of some of your pipes in the gallery that one of them is that mushroom topped poker thing. I, I don't yeah. know. Is that how? Uh, calabash. Is that a reverse calab? Is that a calabash <laughs> bowl set inside of a poker? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, wow. Yeah, that uh, that came from uh, me wanting to do a calabash for a really long time, uh, and just never getting around to it. Mostly because it, it's it's a fairly complicated pipe to make. Uh, not difficult. There's just a lot more steps to it. And that was when the calabash craze was going on, and that's you know that's how pipes work. There's uh, crazes every once in a while. Usually, when a movie comes out and there's a pipe <laughs> in it, you know, like everyone wants church wardens as soon as Lord of the Rings airs, and uh, everyone wanted a calabash after <laughs> Glorious Bastards came out. Came out, and I was about ready to do a calabash, and everyone started doing them, and being a nonconformist, I uh, decided to make it look like a mushroom. And it's I actually called it the Goomba, which is <laughs> the name of the, the bad mushroom guys in Super Mario Brothers, which I spent way too much time playing as a kid. I, I knew that. I've played it enough that I knew that was their names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, we're old. Uh, is, what kind of wood is the actual bowl mushroom part? Uh, the, the bowl or, or the, uh, body and the bowl itself are made out of briar and the cap is, uh, sandblasted walnut. 
Okay, that's why it looks. It looks. Right. I'm just looking at pictures. I can just imagine what it looks like in person. Um. So, so since you've got that wild shape up there, and you've got some other really cool shapes in the gallery, do you? prefer commissions do you like commissions or do you want to be left alone and you make what you want uh well ideally i'd want i just sit there and make whatever i felt like uh but few pipe makers can get away with that <laughs> <clears throat> and uh commissions can be really fun and kind of annoying sometimes um, yeah, but for the last like five years, 90, 95% of my business has been commission work Have and you... I'm not going to, I'm not going to complain about someone wanting to give me money about, uh, for a pipe. So have you had a pipe smoker come to you with a commission that was just absolutely crazy and not possible? And you told them, uh, bugger off. There's been a small number of times where I've done that and. It's sometimes it's, I don't know, people, as pipe collectors sometimes need to uh, approach it differently. I'm not, don't want to tell people what to do, (laughs) but uh, be a little bit open-minded towards the process. And a lot of guys, and I guess including myself, don't enjoy someone approaching them with another pipe maker's work and saying they want that, <laughs> you know, and it's because a lot of times you get approached. So, I mean, I've been approached to, it has been a small number of times with uh, someone else's pipe and it's not even close to what my pipes end up looking like. And I, I just kind of want to go, well, watch ask that guy for a pipe. <laughs> well, I want your version of it. Yeah, no, and now if they're open to uh, someone else's take on it, that's great. Um, you know, like take this idea and run with it, see what what you could do. That that's fantastic. But when they want just want an exact copy, that could be really frustrating sometimes. And and now you've been making pipes steadily for. 10 years now is there any uh, any advice or uh, words of wisdom that you can give to a new pipe maker well first of all I'd say no pipe don't be a pipe maker because I don't need any more competition <laughs> get, out, get out of the way kid you bother me <laughs> but no but uh, I'd say seek advice uh, but be careful who you ask advice from um, and try to get it from multiple sources because every pipe maker uh, has a different style and uh, approach to making them. Uh, there's some great pipe makers that I'm friends with, and I love their pipes, but when I hear how they make them, I'm just scr- scratching my head, like, why are you doing it like that? <laughs> and Which goes, just goes to show there's no right way to do it. And uh, and go to, go to pipe shows... And talk to pipe makers face to face. Don't ask them to critique your pipe based off a picture online, because yeah. it could either look really bad in a picture. I've I've made some pipes where I couldn't get a good picture of it, <laughs> especially like some asymmetrical ones where it looks great from one picture, but from other pictures, it's just it's hard to see what's going on. But uh, get get face to face critiques and. Uh, be open-minded. Don't uh, don't expect to hear what you want to hear. All right, now let's talk about beer because you um, have a passion for all kinds of beer. Is that fair to say? I'd say so. That's the nice way to say it. <laughs> You've never met a beer you didn't like. <laughs> uh. I, you know what kind of beer do you what kind of beer do you like and I guess does it does it matter what type of season or mood you're in? Uh, I drink a lot of IPAs. Well, um, I've got some favorites. Uh, uh, like uh, 
Lagunitas IPA is kind of my go-to. Uh, mostly because it's everywhere. And, uh, there's some from back home in Columbus that I really like that I can't get here anymore. So every time I go back to Columbus for a family thing or like Thanksgiving, I come back with uh, a few six-packs, uh, Great Lakes six-packs. <laughs> so your car is jangling across the state line as you hit yeah. a bump. <laughs> Are there? Uh, I know enough about beer to be to be dangerous, but I don't have the palate that you do, nor do I have the um, uh, the desire for some of the some of the real hoppy or real bitter stuff that all you beer snobs really like. But does your taste in beer change as the season does? No, I don't think so. I uh, I, I I'll grab whatever I'm in the mood for. Or my or what my wallet will allow, because I do make things for a living. So yeah. I, uh, sometimes I have to go the PBR route. Hey 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 hey! <laughs> don't don't don't! Uh, careful, you might get thrown out of Nashville because that's a that's a highbrow beer now. A PBR got me through college, so uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say anything bad about it. It does it does exactly what it needs to do. Uh, PBR is actually served in fine dining restaurants in Nashville. That's all I got to say. White tablecloths and PBR. Uh, good old Pabst Blue Ribbon. All right, so is there is there a really good inexpensive beer that you like? Uh, you know what? Uh, I got turned. Someone turned me on to Coors Banquet lately, like about a, about a, like three weeks ago, and. I never liked Coors, but someone's just like, hey, you got to try out this Coors Banquet. And I tried it, and I've, I've purchased it a few times since then. That That's the original Coors in the short, stubby, round bottles? Uh, they come in... Uh, they, they come in the short bottles, 12-ounce cans. And what I really like, too, and they're hard to find, the the funnel-top cans. What the hell's a funnel What's a funnel top? It, it kind of looks like a. Uh, oh, it kind of looks like a. Uh, a cross between a, a bottle and a can, and it has a screw top, like cap on it. And, oh, okay. Uh, that's like it, that was how all canned beer was like back in the, thirties, or, whenever prohibition stopped being a thing, <laughs> and. Uh, like I've I've done some research and a uh, I think I saw it on Antiques Roadshow a 1930s era PBR funnel top can is worth three hundred dollars if you have one laying around. Dang! All right, and if money's no object, what kind of beer are you buying? What beer? What brand? Uh, well, money's always an object. No, not for this question. <laughs> You know, I've never really thought about that. Um, I'll go for some of the uh, harder to find. Uh, well, not necessarily harder to find, but fifteen dollar and up six packs. Like uh, really liking Sculpin from. Uh, I don't remember who makes it actually, but uh, it's got a picture of a fish on the bottle. It's hard to see, and they make a habanero IPA that's really, really good. Oh, good lord. Spicy and burpy all at the same time. And you can really only drink one at a time. Like there, I've never had one and wanted a second one afterwards. <laughs> all right. How many pipes a year do you think you're able to make? <clears throat> well, that's hard to say because uh, at my old job, I was mostly cleaning estate pipes and doing uh, online orders, you know, order fulfillment, I mean. And, uh, I usually only worked on the weekends then, and since then, though, I've learned some new procedures that have sped it up quite a bit. But last year, I made 70 pipes, and that's, I mean, that's definitely the most pipes I've ever made in one year. And, uh, I mean, I'm probably capable of uh, 100 pipes a year if if I really try. And your your pipes start out at about what four seventy five five hundred for a sandblast. 
Uh, 400 and up. Yeah, like a, a Black Blast. Uh, I, I don't... Uh, I don't like going too high with a black sandblast, but uh, usually it's 400 and up. I don't have a top top number I stay below or anything. It's the highest price pipe I ever made, and uh, that was last. The last Chicago show was uh, 1250, Ooh. and uh, I was really hesitant because I had never gone above a thousand dollars. Because a lot of times I, I my personal buying habits factor into it, and I'm like I wouldn't buy a thousand dollar pipe. <laughs> but uh, it was my first uh, Uber grade pipe that I ever made. It was uh, I actually had the stamp made specifically for that pipe. So you so you have one that you have a stamp called Uber. It's it's a stamp uh, around the Briarworks. We refer to all high grade pipe makers like high grade stamp. Like uh, Lars Iverson has the fish, I think. Uh, Tokotomi has the butterfly, and so forth and so forth. Kind of like denoting the best of the best. And uh, we we always call all those stamps Uber stamps. <laughs> and Todd and I were discussing it, and. Because he's like, man, you gotta get a stamp made for that pipe. Like that's that's something. That, and it was, it was, I was kind of stunned about that pipe myself. And it took me a, a while to finish it because I was almost scared of it. Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we were discussing it, and we were coming up with all kinds of mostly inappropriate things to, to stamp on a pipe. No, I can't imagine. And. <laughs> And uh, I was walking out of the office, and it just hit me, and I just turned around and went, what if it just said, the Uber stamp? <laughs> and it made Todd laugh, so I ran with I, I ordered it that night, and it just says, the Uber stamp. <laughs> um, besides your website, where else can we go and look at your pipes? <clears throat> oh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and... Uh, my two dealers right now is smokingpipes.com and uh, fairly new one, Blue Room Briars. That's uh, run by Jesse Jones and Scott Townsend in the, the Columbus area. Yeah. And uh, they've only gotten one batch from me so far, but I'm going to get them some new ones here soon. And uh, <laughs> and, if, and if you're going to be a high-grade pipe maker, you got to have smoking pipes. Uh, but the but your average for a smooth is around the six fifty seven hundred dollar range unless it's got the Uber stamp on it. In that case, it's uh, the Uber price. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For a high grade smooth, for like a like a my normal smooth, it's like six twenty five to about seven fifty on average. If it's stamped the Uber, does that mean that I get an app that will call it to come to me? Well, my Uber has umlauts, so... Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in that case, it'll just tell you to bugger off. Uh, Bill, we'll wrap this up with the Fast Five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Ready. What is your favorite pipe? Uh, it's one I made. It's a little cutty billiard. And what is your favorite tobacco? I am partial to uh, Samuel, or no, I'm sorry, Gawith and Hogarth, uh, Scotch Flake. Hey, that's a first. <laughs> um, not, not a lot of people have had that one. Yeah. Uh, let, let's see if you can answer this one correctly. What's your favorite drink? Uh, white Russians. <laughs> After all that time. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, too much beer for you, Bill. Um when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? I love books. Do you have a particular genre that you like? Uh, I do read novels, but I uh, <laughs> I love picture books. Uh, a lot of I have my bookshelf is full of uh, art art books and how to books and things like that. Yeah, I kind of figured that. And then finally, do you have a particularly favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't discussed? 
Yeah, but most of them are uh, from the pipe shows at Chicago, and I don't know if I should talk about those. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> Was it before 8 p.m. or after 8 p.m.? Oh, uh, there's no fun to be had before 8 p.m. at Chicago. Well, in that case, <laughs> yeah, I, I won't tell you about the spitball competition that uh, Todd Johnson and I got into one night over a couple of tables and, that ended in wet willies. Yeah, yeah some of the best ones usually uh, could be considered breaking the law. Well, in that case, uh, check out Bill's Pipes on his website. Check him out on his retailers. Bill, thank you very much for uh taking the time away from the uh, lathe and the beer bottle to join us. Sure. Thanks, Brian. We'll be back in just a minute. According to a recent nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Three leading independent research organizations asked this question of 113,597 doctors. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camel. Now, you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. And that's why, if you're not a camel smoker now, try a camel on your T-zone. That's T for taste and T for throat. Your true proving ground for any cigarette. See if camel's rich flavor of superbly blended choice tobaccos isn't extra delightful to your taste. See if camel's cool mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you, too, don't say camels suit my T-zone to a T. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back to a pre-recorded episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And do uh, make sure and check out Bill's Pipes and uh, let him know if you want to commission something. Um, all right, for music, we are going to a trio that uh, Scott Thiele put up the video on uh, on his Facebook page, and I liked it. And the trio is Edgar Meyer, Yo-Yo Ma, and Chris Thiele doing a uh, box sonata. So we got the uh, son of a pipe maker in here. Thank you. 
is three world-class musicians performing a, a world-class piece of music done by a pipe smoker. Uh, look for it. I believe it's on uh, None Such Records if you want to order it. But again, that's uh, Chris Thiele, Yo-Yo Ma, and Edgar Meyer. All right, straight into the mailbag. Why? Because the only thing I've got is this wonderful article that was in Slate, uh, Slate on Slate.com. And I'm going to try to read most of it to you here. I'll cut out some of the boring stuff, but here we go. It says, the title of the article, and it was published on February 13th, uh, We Use Terrible Science to Justify Smoking Bans. Will we look at the new evidence for long enough to at least consider whether we've gone too far? Helena, Montana, uh, it'll, it'll explain this, uh, does not often make global headlines, but in 2003, the small capital city became known for briefly achieving one of the most astounding public health triumphs ever recorded. In June of the previous year, Helena had, impl- had implemented a comprehensive smoking ban in its workplace, Workplaces, bars, restaurants, and casinos. In the first six months of the ban, the rate of heart attacks in the city plummeted by nearly 60%. Just as remarkably, when a judge struck down the smoking ban in November of that year, the rate of heart attacks shot right back up to its previous level. For three anti-smoking advocates, local physicians Richard Sargent and Robert Shepard, and activists and researchers Stanton Glantz, from the University of California at San Francisco, this sudden drop in heart attacks was proof that smoking bans usher in extraordinary benefits for public health. This striking finding suggests that protecting people from the toxins and secondhand smoke not only makes life more pleasant, it immediately starts saving lives, said Glantz in a press release sent out by UCSF. Uh, of Helena's, uh, let's see, newspapers ran with the story credulously assuming that the correlations had been truly caused by the smoking ban. The bottom line of Helena's plummeting, then soaring heart attack rate is painfully obvious, warned an op-ed in the New York Times. Secondhand smoke kills. The BBC projected that banning smoking in public places could prevent hundreds of deaths from heart disease. Wire services carried the results around the globe, and even the conservative Wall Street Journal cited the result as an important finding. In the early 2000s, as jurisdictions around the country, across the country fought over expanding smoking bans to bars and restaurants, anti-smoking advocates seized on the Helena study and related research showing that secondhand smoke exposure can affect coronary functions to promote fear of secondhand smoke. Uh, groups across the country stated that even half of our secondhand smoke exposure causes heart damage similar to that of habitual smokers. Not to be outdone, the Association for Non-Smokers in Minnesota wrote in a press release that just 30 seconds of exposure could make coronary artery function of non-smokers indisguisable from smokers. The message to non-smokers was clear. The The briefest exposure to secondhand smoke can kill you. A decade later, comprehensive smoking bans have proliferated globally, and now the evidence has had time to accumulate. It's also become clear that the extravagant promises made by the anti-smoking groups that implementing bans would bring about extraordinary improvements in cardiac health never materialized. Newer, better studies with much larger sample sizes have found little to no correlation between smoking bans and short-term incidents of heart attacks, and, so, and certainly nothing remotely close to the 60% reduction that was claimed in Helena. The updated science debunks the alarmist fantasies that were used to sell smoking bans to the public, allowing for a more sober analysis suggesting that current restrictions on smoking are extreme from a risk-reduction standpoint. By the time the Helena study was published in the British Medical Journal, the authors had lowered the observed reduction in heart attacks from 60% to 40%. Still an impressive figure, but a substantial drop from the claim that they had prematurely publicized to press worldwide. Immediate responses to the paper from other scientists were harshly critical, noting the small size of the Helena population, about 68,000 residents at the time. 
and the medically implausibility of achieving such a massive effect in a short period. It was impossible to know with certainty whether the drop was caused by the ban or was simply due to chance. Nonetheless, the Helena paper spawned a wave of studies seeking to replicate the finding. Research in observing similar reductions followed in places such as Pueblo, Colorado, Bowling Green, Ohio, and Monroe County, Indiana. One characteristic shared by these places were their low populations and correspondingly small sample sizes. The last of these studies covered only 22 heart attacks among non-smokers over the course of nearly four years. When studies sampling larger populations finally appeared, the reported declines in heart attacks began to shrink. A study of the Piedmont region of Italy found a much lower decline of 11%, though curiously only for residents under the age of 60 years. Uh, England, which implemented a smoking ban nationwide, presented the first opportunity to study the matter on a national scale. Researchers there credited the ban with a heart attack reduction of just over 2% nationwide. Critics noted that the rate of heart attacks in England had also been falling in the years prior to the ban and that the reason for the decline was still not clear. Regardless, the data there made it obvious that the miraculous reductions claimed in smaller studies were unrealistically high. Even so, despite acknowledging the wide variation in findings and the admitted methodological limitations of the studies, a 2009 meta-analysis conducted by the Institute of Medicine concluded that the impact of smoking bans on short-term health, on short-term heart attack rates was real and substantial. Even a small amount of exposure to secondhand smoke can cause a heart attack. One member of the IOM panel informed the New York Times, urging that smoking bans need to be put in place as quickly as possible. The report had, however, omitted one of the largest studies of secondhand smoke and heart attacks conducted to date. A 2008 study covering the entire country of New Zealand a population smaller than England but bigger than, than the American towns previously studied, found no significant effects on heart attacks or unstable angina in the, following imp, in the year following the, imp, the implementation of a smoking ban. Hospitalizations for the former had actually increased. Uh, it goes on, and then it finally says, A 2012 study of six American states that had instituted smoking bans came to a similar conclusion. So did a 2014 study, which is notable for being co-authored by some of the researchers who had previously published papers suggesting that Colorado towns of Pueblo and Greeley had experienced reduced rates of heart attacks. The rest of the article, we'll try to post a we'll post a link on the uh, radio show page there for you to go dig it out. But essentially, what it does is it just completely debunks all this and says that uh, you know secondhand smoke does not cause heart attacks, and this might be the absolute beginning of reeling back some of these laws and perhaps getting uh, getting it to where the decision is in the hands of the owner of the business whether or not they want to allow smoking in their business. If employees don't want to work there, they can work in places that don't have smoking. If people don't want to patronize a smoking establishment, well, they don't have to. They can uh, vote with their dollars. All right, there you go. Read that article. It's kind of nice to see that, uh, hey, something's coming out, and maybe we might get a chance to get a few more uh, smoking places in, uh, you know, smoking bars or smoking restaurants and get some of these... uh, Restrictions loosened up. All right. Um, happy to say this will be the last time you hear the uh, Molta Dolce ad. Sad to say this will be the last time that uh, Sutliff and the Sutliff Tobacco Company and McBaron will be sponsoring the show. So uh, here's your uh, final listen to the uh, famous Molta Dolce ad. Signore, signore, scusi per favore, but what is that intoxicating and delicious aroma coming from your pipe? 
Oh, uh, this is Molto Dolce, my all-time favorite blend from Sutliff Tobacco. Do you like it? I found it on SutliffMoltoDolce.com. Do you mind if I try? Oh, signore, this truly is Molto Dolce. So charming that you even speak my language as it is truly very sweet. <laughs> just like you, I am sure. I can just taste the warm caramel and sweet dripping honey gushing through my mouth. Oh, and even better, the rich vanilla flavor plays so well with the other tastes over my tongue. It is like they are all having a giant playful pillow fight on smooth and silky sheets of tobacco in my mouth. Pure heaven! Mi piace moltissimo, mi amore. Can't you see it, signore? I can see it. I can see it. And signore, best of all, no tongue bite. Grazie un milione for the pipe, signore. Hey! Sutliff Tobacco Company will not be held responsible for any loss of one's favorite pipe customers may experience when smoking our delicious Balto Dolce blend in public. Cowboy. Cowboy. Well, aren't you glad I didn't play the full three-minute-long one of Molta Dolce? Anyway, all right, uh, for personal email, I use a Hotmail address. Have my hot, I've had my Hotmail address for, I don't know, 12, 14 years now, 15 years now. It's just a standard Hotmail.com email address, and that's where all my personal emails come into. Well, it seems like in the past six months or so, uh, Microsoft and Hotmail have added new security features to get the spam out because apparently they're, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I know there's all kinds of additives and things that I can get that can uh, make my life better and they've trimmed out all those emails. <laughs> the funny thing is, and the thing that gets me about it is the, uh, guess what else they've trimmed out? All the emails from the Microsoft Store go directly into my spam folder. <laughs> the emails directly from Microsoft itself and their Microsoft Store trying to get me to upgrade my Windows 7 to Windows 10 or get me uh, the new security ex- uh, essentials or upgrade my uh, PowerPoint, whatever it is, all those emails get caught in the spam filter that Microsoft itself has built so it admits that their sales ads or their sales emails are all spam. It's They even admit that they're spam themselves. So, um, yeah, so thank you. Anyway, um, I have purchased some stuff from the Microsoft Store. I've purchased a you know, service plan a couple of times and uh, upgraded this and that. But, again, I just think it's funny that the Spam filter built by the company catches its own stuff as spam and throws it in there with all the uh, Nigerian princes wanting to, wanting to give me money and all the uh, lonely men and women out there that want to uh, accompany me late at night for free. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, hey, next week I'll be back here. I'll uh, tell you all about my trip. Hopefully uh, next week I'll tell you all about my uh, new job because it will have started already and uh, we'll, uh, I'll fill you in on what I'm doing. Uh, please make sure and share the Pipes Magazine radio show with all your friends, family, enemies, whoever. Spread the word around. Let's get, uh, get more listeners going. If you haven't had a chance, please leave a, write, a rating or review for us on iTunes. We would appreciate that. And I want to thank... Uh, Bill Shalosky for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in, and until next time. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to you.
Mickey Mouse.